Welcome to the Growth Ventures Podcast, the go-to platform for entrepreneurs, innovators, and changemakers. I'm your host, Hamlet Azari. In this podcast, we delve into the world of business, technology, and innovation. We bring you conversations with industry leaders, disruptors, and visionaries who are shaping the future and making a difference. So whether you're an aspiring entrepreneur, a seasoned business owner, or simply a curious listener, join us on the journey of learning and growth. Welcome to the Growth Ventures Podcast. And now, let's delve into today's episode. Welcome to the latest episode of the Growth Ventures Podcast, where we explore the intersection of technology, entrepreneurship, and innovation. I'm your host, Hamlet Azarian. Today, we're thrilled to welcome Heather Meeker, a distinguished expert in open source licensing and leading figure in tech law arena. Heather boasts a remarkable career, including her pastoral as technology transactions partner at O'Alvey & Myers LLP a board member at Starknack Foundation, and notably her current position as general partner at OSS Capital. OSS Capital, founded in 2018, stand out as the first and only institutional VC firm exclusively dedicated to supporting startups focusing on commercial open source software development. With an impressive track record of leading over 40 founding and seed rounds globally, OSS Capital profoundly uh, impacts the open source ecosystem. In addition to her venture capital work, Heather is also an esteemed academic who taught for over 12 years at the University of California Berkeley School of Law and University of California San Francisco School of Law. Today, we'll delve into Heather's extensive experience in open source business models, her insights on technology and intellectual property licensing, and perspectives on the future of tech law. Let's dive in. Heather, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to have you here. Well, thank you. I'm very happy to be here today. Of course. So Heather, before we get into your overall background, if we could take a few minutes for our listening audience um, who might be listening in for the for the first time and hearing of open source software, can you explain a little bit about what that is and particularly commercial open source software and how it's different and how it's unique and different in the marketplace? Well, starting from the very basics, open source software is software that's available to everyone in source code form under a license that essentially allows you to do whatever you like with the software. It might impose some conditions like source code sharing or notice requirements, but the fundamental idea is what the Free Software Foundation uh, calls Freedom Zero, which is, uh, I may not, I, I may have to paraphrase this a little bit, but it's the freedom to run the software for any purpose you like. So there are a bunch of licenses like that, and they've been around for a long time. The open source development model has been fantastically successful. Uh, uh, what I like to say is, you know, it covers Linux, the Linux kernel, which is the most popular operating system on two planets because it's the most popular one here and on Mars because it was in the Mars rover. But uh, it's been fantastically successful. Now, that has happened within the last 20 to 30 years. The whole business of software has moved over substantially to open source. What's happened with commercial open source is it starting, you know, mostly about 10 years ago. Uh, there, there was a little bit happening before that time. It started ramping up a lot, maybe five years ago figured out that they could build businesses using open source software. And that's a can be a fundamentally difficult concept because people ask, how can you possibly make money giving something away? Because all this stuff is free. 
And that's what I spend a lot of my time focusing on. But the point is that actually commercial open source uh, software development is an extremely powerful business model. And I've been focusing on that lately with our fund and also in the book that I just released. And so that's what I spend a lot of my time thinking about now. That's amazing. So like some companies would be like Red Hat on Linux, right? That would be an example of one or? Yeah, I would say Red Hat is the quintessential example because they don't have any proprietary licensing at all. And so they take the Linux kernel, they make their own build of it. And what they sell, uh, I like to look at it as quality control. So if you're a CTO at a company and you want something that will run all your you know, software and hardware, and you want that to be Linux, and most people do, um, then you go to Red Hat and you say, you know, I would like to pull a switch and have you provision me with all of my software. And on a, at a certain level, you don't care whether it's free software or not, um, although that does decrease the price because you're willing to pay for getting a quality controlled product that gets delivered on time, updated on time, and so forth. And the difference between sort of the free nature of the product and the value of the quality control is like the quintessential value of a commercial open source software business. That's amazing. And you guys have been, as a VC, you're the lead, leader in this space, right? You're, you're the first and you're pretty much the leader in the early stage and seed and early stage, correct? That you guys do about... I think we're still the only one that only invests in commercial open source software that plenty of venture funds have invested in commercial open source companies, but most venture funds are actually pretty agnostic about things like licensing models. We, however, believe that commercial open source software is the best business model there is for a variety of reasons. And so we're putting our money where our mouth are. And, uh, and so we've built a portfolio that that consists exclusively of companies that are built around open source software. What are the some of the advantages in your viewpoint? Well, um, when you start an open source, uh, commercial open source software business, the typical way you start it is, you know, there's somebody working in their garage or they're, you know, these days they're sitting at their desk at home and they start developing a software project and they throw it out on GitHub and some people get interested in it and so forth. And then they decide, wow, you know, I would like to make a business out of that. Either that or we come to them and say, this is a great project. Would you like to make a business out of it? And so then we give them some money as an investment and they build it out. And the thing about commercial open source software development is that it makes unbelievably efficient use of cap. I mean, software businesses are pretty capital efficient to begin with, but many of our companies are at the outset, just a few people. They may be in geographically dispersed areas. They usually have no offices and they do everything asynchronously over, you know, collaboration tools. Plus open source software kind of sells itself because a lot of times 
companies that want to buy commercial licenses or support agreements or whatever for open source, the, the sale actually happens through their developers as opposed to their procurement arm. And so you don't have to spend a lot of money on sales either because you develop a lot of street cred in the open source world. So you put those things together, you can give a company a fairly modest amount of money and they can make a tremendous product and get a lot of attention and start making sales uh, with fairly little investment. Wow. So it's like the true essence of a product-led growth then. It, it, yeah. it exactly. That's phenomenal. And and then I noticed that you guys do a, a get round. What is that as a VC? That's that's kind of a smaller scale investment. We do much smaller investments for much smaller companies. It's still overall a similar model. You know, we're we're traditional VCs in that way, but those are for companies that are you know just one person, really small. They just need a small cash infusion in order to get going. And they're even earlier stage. We are extremely early stage to begin with, but we try to identify some of the potentially up and coming projects where, you know, maybe the founders haven't even thought about making a business out of it yet. And so they can come to us, we can give them a small investment and then they can see if they can prove out their product. Awesome. So Heather, let's take a step back a little bit and let's talk about your overall background. You obviously uh, are are a professor of law. You you practiced there. What drew you into law and technology? Can you tell me a little bit about that? Well, I learned to program when I was eight. And wow. That was a long time ago. <laughs> like Most people didn't even know what computers were back then. Uh, my father happened to work in um, in computer science, kind of. And so I got exposed to ideas about programming very early. And then I went, you know, went through school. I went to college. And when I was in college, um, I went to liberal arts school. They didn't have a degree in computer science, or at least I don't think they did. But I took some classes and I thought, this is really great. And I finished my degree. And then I went out to get a job, and I found that it was very easy to get a job as a programmer. It's it's kind of like today. It kind of went full circle. And people didn't care whether you had a degree in it because nobody was getting degrees in it back then. And so, you know, I started coding for a living um, pretty shortly after I graduated from college. So I have a love of coding. I mean, to me, it's a wonderfully absorbing thing to do. It's it's frustrating and wonderful at the same time. You know, every developer, I say you, you're you not a developer unless you've had the experience of staying up all night to find a semicolon in the wrong place, right? That's, that's the quintessential developer experience. But if you're the kind of person who has to find that semicolon, it's for you, right? Uh, so I did, I did some coding and then I, I kind of bounced around for a while. I ended up doing... Uh, application development, but this was back a long time ago, uh, and it got to be not much fun for a while. And so then I went and did some other things. I was a musician for a while. I started a business. And then I decided to go to law school because by that time I needed some health insurance. So uh, 
I uh, I went to law school and just then, this was in the early 90s, uh, things were, something was happening that they called at that time convergence. I don't even think they use the term anymore. But media and technology were converging. This was right before the web kind of happened. And when I saw that, I thought, this is for me because I had been a musician. I had been a coder. And it kind of married my interests. And so I you know, went to work as a lawyer doing technology deals, and I kind of never looked back. I, It was a wonderful career, and I really loved it. Um, and then only a few years in, I started to learn about open source, and I just got more and more absorbed in that over time. I thought it was intellectually interesting and fun and had this, you know, new kind of sharing ethos, and there was a lot of great stuff about it. So I just learned more and more about it. And then you know, all of a sudden you learn as much as you can about something, you can be an expert too. That's awesome. So so what I heard here is that you were initially a coder, you enjoyed the process of developing, and then you discovered law and you kept close to what you enjoyed, which was obviously technology and kind of being involved actively in it. And then now now we discovered open source and that started to draw you in. What was what was it about open source that really excited you? Like you know, obviously there there's some community elements of it, but what what is the what is the one thing about open source that really stands out for you? Well, to be honest, what stood out for me initially was that it was a weird intellectual puzzle. Um, you know, when you're a lawyer, what you learn if you're interested in intellectual property is how to protect intellectual property. Free software licenses forced you to give it away. <laughs> and that was so different and no lawyers understood it back then. It was not really created by lawyers. It was created by developers. And so I started learning about this alternative and it was just this wonderful intellectual puzzle. You, you had to do these kind of mental gymnastics to analyze open source issues as opposed to normal things like proprietary licenses and patent licenses and so forth. So that's what got me interested in it originally. I have to say that over the years, I think I've absorbed the open source ethos a lot. And it, it moved from just an intellectual puzzle, which it still kind of is, to something that I really believe in a lot. I, I got I got drawn in to the open source ethos. That's awesome. So so what is like why do you think the openness of it and, and being able to give the software away draws a certain type of person in per se? You would you would think it would be everyone would love this, right? Every everyone would be like amazing. We can work on the same problem together. We can solve we can solve this complicated challenge challenge together. Why does it draw a certain type of person in and why isn't everybody per se trying to do open source? What do you think the differentiation is there? I think that it draws in most developers, actually. I think most developers are very excited about open source. Business people tend to be less excited about it because they start with the mindset that the developers are producing this asset, intellectual property asset, and then it's their job to conserve that. But what the developers understand is that collaboration is probably more powerful for a business 
than just conserving and monet and maximal monetization of what they're developing. So it's a very different approach. And I don't know many developers who don't like open source, but I know a lot of business people who are, shall we say, skeptical about it from a business point of view. And then you have companies like Microsoft that have evolved too, right? Like they went from being very closed to more open per se, or trying to become more open source. So I guess businesses do go through a transformation moment as well too. Um, I would say almost all businesses have made that transformation at this point. When, when Microsoft joined something called Open Invention Network, which is a, it's like a patent pool to protect Linux. Um, and they left behind their business model of suing people for patent, you know, based on Linux. That was a watershed moment. Um, open source, uh, Microsoft was one of the last holdouts that was militating against open source. They, you know, they said some very, you know, unpleasant things about open source at the beginning. But then as they started to change, and they started to realize that they had to evolve as a business and just not be a like software licensor company anymore. Um, that's when they started to embrace it. And when the the change in management happened, um, you know, uh, back about what was it like fifteen years ago or something. That's when they really started to embrace it. So yeah, almost every business has embraced it now. There are a few holdouts, but when Microsoft came over, people in the open source world joked that they just thought hell had frozen over. I mean, we never thought that would happen. And it happened, and that just, uh, it sealed the deal that businesses then understood the value of participating in open source. That's amazing. So as a... Uh... As a general partner at OSS Capital, what are you guys actively looking for when it comes to a new new deal? Uh, what, how do you guys go find the right type of opportunities that make sense for you guys as an investment? We want to see a great project. First of all, we we don't usually invest in people who are planning to release code. We invest in people who have already released code. And by the way, from a VC point of view. That's pretty awesome because we could do a lot of diligence before we even like get involved, you know, directly with the company if we want. Uh, so we look for the interesting project. In particular, we look for projects that have, like GitHub stars are great, you know, but um, what we're really looking for is a community starting around the project, lots of participants and you know a well-run project and everything so that's sort of the baseline and then uh, we are looking for founders who really want to run a business so what i should say is that some open source projects are just labors of love or community projects and and the founders never want them to be a business or they want them to be the kind of business where they do maybe some professional services or something like that but that's a lot of lifestyle business yeah that would not be a venture-backed business because, because professional investors expect more returns than that. So um, we also need to find founders who are really interested in running a business. And, you know, honestly, we've run up against some good projects that were really interesting to us, but we didn't think the founders really wanted to run a business and we passed on those. 
also we have a definite preference. I don't know if we've ever broken this rule, but certainly not very often, where we want to invest in the business started by the founders of the project. Like you can, like Red Hat didn't, you know, start Linux, right? So it's still a fantastically successful business, but we would rather invest in the company that is run by the people who started the project. Got it. Okay. What are some of the more exciting projects you guys are actively invest have recently invested in? Oh, there are a lot. Um, I'll mention a couple. Uh, one of them, one of our first investments, a company called Cal.perm, and they are online scheduling. Uh, and so if you want to schedule a call with somebody, you can set up your, your schedule and they can pick a time and then it automatically goes into video chat when the appointment happens. Uh, that's a fantastic company. It's a great product. I use it every day and I love it. You know, I'm eating my own dog food there. Um, and it has some proprietary competitors, but I honestly think it's the best of breed. One of the things about open source products, based products, is that they tend to be a little bit cleaner and simpler than some of their proprietary competitors. One of the things about proprietary software is the way companies sell updates and so forth is they keep adding features. And often the, you get feature bloat, you get a really cluttered interface and so forth, whereas open source tends to be a lot more bare bones, which is, I actually think is better product design. Like they don't put in features people don't want because they could just take them out, right? Right. And, uh, and they, they tend to have, I think, a cleaner design because a lot of them are started by developers who, you know, don't want a lot of nonsense and, and too many graphics on their screens and so forth. So I love Cal.com. Another one I'll mention is something called W4Games. So that is built around the Godot gaming engine. And Godot is, uh, the I think it's the leading open source gaming engine. So when people are developing games for platforms like Sony and Nintendo and so forth, they develop on top of an engine. You know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't write from scratch to develop a game. And uh, there are some proprietary companies out there um, who do those, but Godot, Godot is the gaming engine. The company we invested in is called W4 Games, and they're the developer of, of the Godot gaming engine. So that's a different kind of company. Like Cal.com is basically uh, software as a service, software licensing on-premises and so forth. Whereas uh, W4 Games is really selling to game developers and also is doing work with the manufacturers in order to make sure that the engine works properly for the different platforms. So very different kinds of businesses, but they're both completely awesome. Amazing. And you guys are typically first check in with most of these companies? Is that how you guys typically operate? First always. Uh, we're, we're almost always the lead investor on a seed or pre-seed round. We make heavy use of angel investors because um, not so much for the money, although the money's great, right? It's more for the relationships that it helps the companies uh, establish. And many of our angels and also many of our LPs as well 
are people who have who are serial entrepreneurs in the open source space. The reason for that is that we don't have to explain to them why it's okay to do a commercial open source company. They already <laughs> know, right? And we don't have to convince them that it's a good idea. They have already gone through that process. And so, you know, and they can be super helpful to our portfolio companies, providing them advice about how to go to market and scale and so forth. Amazing. And then uh, what, once you guys have invested, you help them obviously with other ways and helping with partnerships, what, what legal aspects, I'm, I'm sure, with your background in law and, and so on and so forth, or what are some of the value add you guys bring to the table besides the capital? Well, of course, we have a big network. I, I would say that my partner, JJ, Joseph Jacks, he has one of the biggest networks I've ever seen, um, knows everybody in this space and can connect uh, the companies with lots of people for various reasons. We have some advisors to our fund who help with things like go to market and scaling and product and so forth. Um, I do help with legal in the very basic sense. Like I'll talk to people about how to organize companies, what basic stuff they need to do in order to put a company together. Most of our founders have never run a company before, so they're kind of starting from square zero. Um, there are sometimes questions about where they're going to set up the company, you know, because they often are international companies. Um, I help them with licensing strategy. You know, what license are you going to pick? How are you going to have a, a commercial business that runs side by side with the license? Uh, how are you going to protect your branding rights and so forth? That's sort of my specialty. And, um, you know, and just whatever they need us for, you know, they're, you know, we're on their speed dial. <laughs> Amazing. That sounds like you guys provide a lot of value back to them. Um, I hope so. Yeah. So let's transition a little bit into sort of like the future. Um, how do you see, foresee the overall just open source life licensing and technology law evolving in the coming years? What are some interesting things that people should be paying attention to? Well, you know, Mark Andreessen famously said software is eating the world. Well, open source is eating software. In fact, we say open source is eating software faster than open, than software is eating the world. Um, the, the kinds of business models that we work on are the business models of the future. If you, if you, if you zoom out to a 50,000 foot view, the idea of say loss leadering and free products and so forth is huge in our economy today. Um, open source businesses are not just about loss leadering. It's more complicated than that. But the point is that people expect to be able to try before they buy now. And, um, and they expect a company to give them some value before they actually become a customer. That's probably the best way to say it. So people who don't do that or who, who are really stingy about it, like, here's your five hour free, you know, uh, trial, you know, people don't like that. <laughs> they, they, they want you to actually give them something of value as a way to pay it forward. And so we think that that is the way businesses are going to run in the future. It's just going to get more and more that way. Uh, we think that 
well, it's already happened that customers expect source code access. Maybe 20 years ago, they didn't, and people bent over backwards to do proprietary binary-only deals with source code escrows and so forth, but that does not fly anymore. So source code access is here to stay, and open source is a huge part of that. So we just think this is the way of the future, and it's going to keep going, and it's never going to stop. In a way, it de-risks companies, right? Having source code, source code access to your customers, just in case if something happens with your commercial business, they, act, they at least have the code base, they can at least continue the project, and so on and so forth, right? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Not only will they have access to source code, but the parts that are under open source licenses, they can do anything they want with. So if they decide that the vendor is no longer healthy or they don't like the vendor anymore, they can go off on their own. Now, most companies don't want to do that, but it's something that they can do so they don't have nearly the business continuity concerns that you have with things like pure SaaS and pure proprietary licensing. Got it. Do you foresee more people, more VCs participating in uh, investing in open source um, software or it feels like you guys have been operating in this space for a while now and uh, it, do you do you foresee like strategies changing from other VCs as well or? I think that most other VCs don't really look at it that way. They'll look at a company and say, this looks like a good company. Oh, it happens to be open source company. What does that mean? You know, and I don't think most of them are very tuned into how you have to run an open source company in a way that's different from others. It's not total rocket science, but they just, um, they're just more generalists. So, and by the way, there are plenty of VCs who have invested in open source, commercial open source development. I mean, plenty of them. So they're out there. It's just that they don't usually focus on it. And also when it comes to things like licensing IP and IP, I kind of hate to say this, but my experience in tech in Silicon Valley is that most people only have a very shallow understanding of it. And so we have a very deep understanding of it. And uh, I'm sure other people could catch up, but they probably have better things to do. Got it. And predominantly, do you, do you see most successful open source companies being sort of like foundational uh, companies or, or do you see them to also be much more cutting edge technology, where, where do you guys get more excited about? And what, what I mean by foundational is um, you look at something like, you know, Terraform and HashiCorp, right? So like th that almost is a foundational layer uh, in in being able to scale up your Dockers and so on and so forth. Do you, do you see more success of that type of companies or do you see something more like a new technology that's coming out that happens to be an open source project and people people hop onto that and, and are interested in pushing that forward? Well, I'll answer a question. I'm not sure it's precisely the one you asked, but it's the one I want to answer. Okay. <laughs> so um, open source, as uh, building commercial companies around open source has been very successful in the infrastructure layer already. You see a lot of companies that do infrastructure and they do an open source core to the infrastructure the reason being mainly this thing that customers expect source code access to manage business continuity and so forth. 
What's happened in the last few years in particular is that we've seen more companies go into the top layer, like the application layer. And commercial open source software development has gotten more successful in that layer. It used to be conventional wisdom that you couldn't really do a business on the application side for open source, but it worked really well for infrastructure. I mean, you had Red Hat, you had Confluent, you had Elastic, and you had Redis, and you had all these companies that were great, Docker, you know, that, that were great infrastructure companies. But uh, the, the conventional wisdom used to be that it was rare to see a commercial open source business in the application layer. There WordPress. were outliers like WordPress, WordPress. right? Yeah. WordPress is, is kind of the quintessential example of how that works. And, um, you know, a lot of the money that they're making is over, um, is providing software as a service. So companies started gelling around that and thinking, okay, we can actually make a business providing applications if we do it right. And that's, I think, what we're happy. See, that's the cutting edge of what's happening in terms of business models. So that is becoming much more popular. So, you know, we have in our portfolio uh, more and more application layer uh, companies. Uh, there's one that we just, uh, you know, just got written up in TechCrunch um, called AppFlowy, uh, which is a great, like, application and um, you're going to see more of that that's open source um, because the notion that you could only do this in infrastructure is is now being challenged. Amazing. And, and then how do you see all of this applying, I guess, in the world of AI? It, 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 do you see, you know, even in the AI world, there's the closed models and then there's the open models. How is this, start, how is this starting to play out in that world? Well, now I might get up on my soapbox a little bit, but um, there's really no understanding of what open means in AI. I, we know what open means for software. They're open source licenses. We kind of know what it means for data. We kind of know what it means for hardware. But when it comes to machine learning models, there's really no definition. And that troubles me. Um, I've been talking and writing about that lately. Uh, there, there are some efforts to try to figure out what it means. And we started a project called Open Weights uh, Definition, um, but there are others as well. Um, and we hope that they will gel because I personally hope that we can demand transparency in AI the way we demand it for software. Right now, it hasn't happened yet. The, the big, large language models, they're not, they're not open, uh, mostly. You know, people call them open source, but most of them actually aren't under open source licenses. They have various degrees of what I would call access and transparency. And we really need as a society to understand how that means and demand it of AI providers, just like we did with software over the last 20, 30 years. Because... People decided over the last 20, 30 years that what they wanted in software, what customers wanted, was transparency and access. There's no reason why we shouldn't be demanding that with AI, too. But we don't even have really open source licenses for AI. We have licenses that have all these restrictions on them and so forth. 
So the model has not really gelled yet, but, um, you know, it'll happen eventually. I'm sure um, what we should be doing as a society is demanding that AI providers uh, adhere to a level of transparency so that we can know what they've done training their model. Uh, that Without that, I think, you know, AI is dangerous. I'm not a doomer, but I think transparency is what gets us to comfort with using AI for the benefit of society. Amazing. Uh, do you see a world where blockchain starts taking more prevalence because of data and and content, or, or where do you see how that playing in, into all of this? Blockchain is a great technology. The problem is it's been tarred with the same brush as crypto. Like crypto is mostly just a scam. There, there are there are <laughs> like a few like okay crypto things, right? Um, but a lot of it was just Ponzi schemes, and and there was not enough regulation about the way that they were marketed and so forth. That that's a question. That's not a technical question. That's not even a technology transparency question. That's like a securities law question, right? Um, but blockchain is an extremely powerful technology. And I think we've only scratched the surface of what we can use blockchain for. But most of what people use blockchain for is actually not cryptocurrency. There are tons of things that you can do with blockchain to verify things in a uh, trustless manner, right? Um, and I'm actually still excited about that, but the bloom is so far off the rose for crypto right now that the rest of blockchain is really suffering for it. And I'm sure it'll come back, uh, but it, it, given the economic times we're going through right now, it's kind of on the back burner. Got it. Heather, I want to spend a few minutes to talk about your book, um, uh, Project Jabrava. Can you, for the for listeners who are listening in right now, can you tell them a little bit about the book and what you cover in it? Yes. So um, this book is supposed to be kind of a handbook or thought exercise for uh, developers or business people who are thinking about starting businesses around open source software. So exactly the kind of people that we would be investing in as portfolio companies. Um, there, as far as I know, there isn't really a book about that other than this one. But I've tried to condense sort of my basic knowledge about how this works into the book and make it accessible. It's definitely a book that's written for business people and devs, maybe some lawyers too, but it's not a legal book at all. Um, and it talks about how to structure business models in the open source space, gives some examples of companies that have done well in that space, gives some of the different... there. Are, at least a dozen different business models that are common in that space. It goes through all of them and how they work, and then points out some of the pitfalls and, and things to be concerned about, has a checklist in the back about things to do. So this is supposed to be really a handbook for someone who's considering this kind of business or maybe even investing in this kind of business or joining this kind of business to make sure that they understand whether there's a plan. One of the things that I mention in the book is that, um, and I'm not the only person who's come up with sort of this meme, is there was this old South Park episodes, like the the underpants gnomes, right? And the like step one was collect underpants. 
Step three was profit, but step two was a question mark. And that's kind of what some open source businesses are like. The, the book is to answer what that question mark is, because without answering the question mark, you don't have a business. You need a business plan and you need to be cold eyed and practical about what you're selling and what you're not selling in the open source business. Amazing. So it's a, it sounds like it's a great book for someone who has an active project and is looking at ways of turning it into a business or commercializing it in some yeah, Absolutely. That's, that's sort of the core audience that I was hoping to help with the book. I love that. Well, Heather, thank you so much for coming on today. If people want to get a hold of you, what's the best way for them to connect with you? Uh, I'm very easy to find. Uh, I have a website called heathermeeker.com which um, has uh, ways to contact me. You can email me at hmeeker at heathermeeker.com. I have a YouTube channel. Uh, I have a blog, et cetera. And so very easy to find me and, and get a hold of me. Um, and, you know, I answer almost every inquiry anybody sends. So I do my best, right? And so I love to hear from people. If, if they have questions, ask me. You know, <laughs> the worst that can happen is I won't have time to answer, but I usually take the time to answer. And I love talking to people about this stuff. This is, you know, this is what I love. And so it's always just a joy to hear from people who have exciting projects and are trying to sort all this stuff out on their own. Perfect. Well, Heather, thank you so much for taking the time and coming on today. It's been a terrific conversation. Uh, discussions like these are crucial for understanding and ad adapting as we navigate technology and laws complex and ever-changing realms. Uh, thank you, Heather, for sharing all of your expertise. Uh, if you found this episode inspired, insightful, please leave a review and subscribe for more engaging discussions with leaders in technology and law. Also, if you want to take a deeper dive into commercial open source software businesses, take a look at Heather's new book, From Project to Profit, which is a handbook on starting a business around an open source project. It's available on Amazon.com and paperback and Kindle format. I'm Hamad Azarian, your host at Growth Ventures Podcast. Until next time, keep pushing boundaries and exploring the frontiers of technology and legal innovation. Thank you. Thank you.